Land reform in South Africa, and how it is being mediatized to fuel the myth of a white genocide worldwide. A podcast by Sika Agupami. Part 1. There's no place like home. A few words to describe South Africa. Breathtaking, proud, rainbow nation, vibrant, or apartheid. Apartheid, or apartness as translated from Afrikaans, is an ideology promulgating separate development of the four racial groups within South Africa, black, Indian, colored, and white, by forcibly separating people in public and private spaces and heavily reprimanding those who resisted. When apartheid was introduced by the Afrikaner National Party in 1948, South Africa was already somewhat segregated. However, Apartheid is characterized by the fact that segregation was made part of the law. Disguising themselves as promoting equal development and freedom of cultural expression for all, apartheid laws were in reality extremely strict and helped create and maintain severe disadvantages for non-whites, especially black people who were the majority population within South Africa. Basically, apartheid paved the way to a society that thrived on the exclusion of non-whites. The apartheid state was officially abolished in 1994, along with the start of the presidency of the first black South African president, Nelson Mandela, leader of the African National Congress. Apartheid is not a mere memory, as it remains a reality for a lot of South Africans. In the same way that Dorothy's transition from a black and white life to color didn't lead to a resolution of her problems, the abolition of the apartheid state had not led to a miraculous unloosening of the strong grip 50 years of institutionalized racism had over South Africa's population. Apartheid remains a mark that has not completely faded away and is still very present, especially through the unequal distribution of land within South Africa. Mankind has always been obsessed by the idea of owning land. This obsession has been the source of contention, wars, and deaths of billions throughout humanity's history. Gabriel Chevalier, a French novelist, wrote, the desire for carnal possession quickly cools, whereas the desire to own land never quits the heart of a man. Land is a symbol of power, of economic prosperity. The ability to create wealth, provide for oneself and for others, rendering it an invaluable asset, as well as an effective instrument of influence and control within a country. People's relation to land can even have a somewhat spiritual dimension to it. This is especially the case amongst indigenous cultures, when transmitted for generations, it becomes part of one's family, one's heritage, an everlasting trace on the planet. When you tend to land, it gives back, not only to you, but also to many other generations to come. A portal through time, connecting ancestor to spawn. This duality in people's relationship to land, the material and spiritual dimensions, highlights how unrooted people must feel when being plucked from their land and forcefully relocated. This traumatic experience was endured by indigenous South Africans for centuries, as they have been systematically dispossessed from their land by oppressive forces. Dr. Femke Brandt, postdoctoral fellow at the University of Johannesburg, talks to us about this. 
So how is it land dispositions? That that's basically related to the history of colonialism. That history uh, traces back to the 17th century, and then over time, different colonial governments have put in place many, many laws and policies that dispossessed Black Indigenous people. Maybe the most famous is the Native Land Act of 1913. Under this act. Black South Africans were no longer able to own or even rent land outside of designated reserves that constituted only 7-8% to 8% of South Africa's land and were also less fertile than land set aside for white owners. The justification was actually racism. So there was this belief that Europeans were superior to black people so that they would know best how to use the land and what to use the land for. It's like a racist capitalist ideology It is believed that the process of dispossession resulted in the African majority, around 68% of the population, being confined to a mere 13% of the territory, known as Native Reserves, as introduced by the Natives Act of 1913. These areas are also commonly known as African homelands or Bantutsans characterized by extreme poverty and underdevelopment relative to the rest of the country, and rights to land were generally unclear. By making most South Africans landless in the country of their birth, the system produced inequality, division and poverty, depriving a lot of indigenous South Africans from basic amenities such as clean water, housing, healthcare, electricity, and telephones. It is believed by the end of apartheid that around 86% of total agricultural land belonged to white people, who at that time were estimated to have been 10.9% of the population. The systematic dispossession of the indigenous populations of South Africa has been successful in ascertaining and perpetuating white superiority and control within the country. Victor Sulla, a senior economist for the World Bank in charge of Southern Africa, observed, the country was very unequal in 1994, at the end of apartheid. And now, 25 years later, South Africa is the most unequal country in the world. This highlights how the legacy of the apartheid regime still casts a long shadow over the opportunities for black South Africans. Feelings of inadequacy and resentment are present and ever-growing, from a longing to reclaim what was rightfully theirs. As the saying goes, there's no place like home. Part 2. When Hope Turns Into Despair In his speech at the celebrations commemorating the restoration of Land Kremen in June 1998, Nelson Mandela explains the implications and importance of land reform. Returning land, which translates to wealth, back to the dispossessed majority, is an important task because it is one way of addressing the injustices of apartheid. This is why the ANC put the return of South Africa's land back to its people as one of its clauses in its Freedom Charter. A restitution program was thus adopted back in 1994 to restore land rights to people dispossessed of land since the Natives Land Act 1913. Claimants could return to their land or opt for other redress, for instance, in the form of cash compensation. A commission on the restitution of land rights was even established to assist people in their claims. Sadly, these policies of land reform turned out to be spectacularly underperforming, and the government, once a symbol of hope, 
revealed itself to be a sort of modern-day Wizard of Oz, in the manner that they had presented themselves as the salvation of the people, with promises to make up for inequalities, but instead waited out for things to magically resolve themselves. Academics, they have proposed different arguments to explain why land reform hasn't worked. What is discussed a lot is that the actual policies that the ANC designed were not working because either there was no political will to make them work or because they are all designed assuming that a market mechanism of redistribution will be the best way to give land back to black people. Very little of the national budget has been allocated to land reform, never more than 1% of the national budget. At the moment, it's about 0.4%. So there's been a lot of criticism in how land reform was planned. One of the overlooked issues is actually the resistance from landowners. Farmers and white farmers in particular, they have actively also resisted land reforms in different ways. And in addition to this, they have also benefited from the land reform policies. They've managed to, for example, buy farms back that were previously sold to government. And this way, they have managed to maintain control. The statistics that are kind of accepted or used a lot is that land reform has only reformed or transferred ownership of land for less than 10% of the viable commercial farmland. So on the 90%, the other 90% of the commercial farmlands, it's still white farmers mostly, but also a lot of agribusinesses. As a result from the government's handoff approach relating to land restitution and the reluctance from farmers to part with their lands, an abnormal amount of black South Africans are stuck within a vicious cycle of poverty as they have less access to opportunity. For a lot of these black South Africans, land reform would have meant being able to get back their land, a place to live securely without threat of removal or eviction, or an opportunity for the poor to provide for themselves, their families and their communities, as well as contribute to the wealth of the country as a whole through productive agricultural enterprises. The shattering of such promises can lead to bad consequences. In fact, it has been repeatedly proven across time and around the globe that failed land reform leads to conflict. As the landless people are voicing their feelings of abandonment and betrayal towards the government, figures such as Julius Malema, leader of the Economic Freedom Fighters, EFF, are gaining popularity. Julius Malema actively encourages people to start grabbing land and is pressuring the government into enacting land reform. With the elections approaching and the EFF threatening the current ANC, Land reform has become once more one of the main concerns for South Africa, who has proposed a new reform, land expropriation without compensation. Seeing as the willing buyer, willing seller approach that the government has until now taken to land redistribution is thought to have made land reform unaffordable, the government is seeking to remove the compensation part in order to accelerate the process of land redistribution. This proposed amendment has, however, been highly contested and made a lot of noise in the media. So the white farmers are definitely the ones who are making the most noise about this. First of all, it's a proposed amendment. For it to become an actual amendment in the constitution will still take a long time. But often people talk about it as if it's already a reality. Because if you look at what it actually means in terms of the law, it's not very different from an existing provision in section 25, 
which is about the property clause in the South African constitution, which is that land can be expropriated if it is for in the public interest, and then it stipulates provisions for how to do this in a just and equitable way. But this has never been used, this part of the constitution, to actually do land reform. What is proposed now is basically an extension of that very specific provision. Furthermore, people also in their imagination, this expropriation without compensation means that anyone can just take any land. And that is absolutely not how it will work in practice. So Cyril Ramaphosa, the president, he has already promised the wildlife sector, the white commercial farmers, property owners, foreign investors, that they should not worry because they're not going to disrupt their business. That's not the intention of this reform. Secondly, it definitely means in terms of the law that not anyone can just take anyone's property. What it means is that the states can expropriate property. But there is, of course, a whole bureaucracy or administrative process that needs to take place before they can do so. And what they will design is further legislation to, to think of principles on what base they can do that. And then people can also contest it in the law. I think there's a big difference between what the actual change in the law sort of represents and how it is talked about and thought about in the public discourse. And it's also very telling that internationally, all these powerful people, because it's presidents, very uncritically sort of um, adopt this fear and this discourse and narrative of that this is a scary process. Because my question to them would be, how do you justify not doing it? Part 3. The Conspiracy Theory of a White Genocide On the 23rd of August, 2018, President Donald Trump tweeted, I have asked Secretary of State, Secretary Pompeo, to closely study the South Africa land and farm seizures and expropriations and the large-scale killings of farmers. South African government is now seizing land from white farmers. This tweet came out after a Fox News report from the previous night presented by Tucker Carlson, where he claimed that the president of South Africa has begun seizing land from his own citizens because they are the wrong skin color. The journalist continues by labeling the South African government as racist and land expropriation as immoral. One needs only to type land reform in South Africa in the Google search bar to be hit with a wave of information regarding the alleged unspoken oppression and wide-scale murdering of white farmers within South Africa. Katie Hopkins, English media personality, tweeted on the 28th of August 2018, The violent ethnic cleansing of white farmers by armed black gangs is infuriating, and the world doesn't care, or at least... The mainstream media doesn't care. Do you? South Africa has a problem with violence. According to the UNODC, South Africa had the fifth highest murder rate in the world in 2015, with around 57 murders every day. A form of crime that has been getting a lot of attention recently and featured on news tabloids is farm attacks, specifically the brutal murder, assault, and robbery of white farmers. A narrative that has recently been developed is that such farm attacks disproportionately target whites, 
and aimed to drive out or even wipe out white people from South Africa. Some believe that land expropriation without compensation would facilitate this supposed ethnical cleansing. As deputy CEO of the civil rights organization AfriForum writes a book on how the government is allegedly complicit in the brutal farm murders, some white farmers are calling for international aid from world leaders, such as Trump. Australia's interior minister, Peter Dutton, even proposed to offer white South Africans fast-track visas because he said they require deliverance from the horrific circumstances they face from a civilized country like ours. Accurate data from non-biased sources on this phenomenon is actually really hard to find. According to police figures, between April 2016 and March 2017, 74 people, of all races, were murdered on farms in South Africa, compared to more than 19,000 murders nationwide in the same period. No reliable figures suggest that white farmers are being targeted in particular. The government of South Africa and other analysts maintain that farm attacks are part of a broader crime problem and do not have a racial motivation. Farm attacks have become a common talking point among white nationalists worldwide and has also become a key instrument to scare people into believing the white genocide conspiracy theory. Fact-checkers have widely identified the notion of a white genocide in South Africa as a falsehood or myth. Personally, I have a huge problem with the, also the discourse around pharmatech. And I think we really have to see it in the bigger picture of South African society. And there's a huge lobby of commercial white farmers who are very powerful, who have much more sort of opportunity to also tell their story or their version of the story in the media. In 2017, South African police released a statistic that said, I think there's 57 white farmers were murdered. Then my question would be like, why must we spend so much time talking about that if that same number of black people are murdered per day in South Africa? So it says something about how much importance and value is attributed to the life of a white compared to the lives of black people. Again, it represents the power that the white minority in South Africa has to address their issues with crime, their issues of feeling challenged in terms of power and their position on the land. And it's never discussed in relation to the violence towards farm workers on white-owned farms, the violence amongst farm workers and farm dwellers as a result of the huge disparities in wealth and power. This discourse is very problematic, and what it shows is also that in the response of Western countries, they align with the interests of a very small, wealthy group of citizens in South Africa. It represents, like you said, also the, the far-right dominance of, in politics in, uh, globally, which, is, which for me is very scary. You can't talk about violence against white people or white farmers in South Africa without taking into consideration that black people are actually the people that live the most violent lives in this country, definitely. I am not claiming that farm attacks are not happening within South Africa, as I do believe that living in a vast isolated area within this country can be very dangerous, as the remoteness and openness of their location 
would make them easy targets for criminals. The issue that I am trying to point out is that some nationalist groups are playing with those legitimate fears and concerns of white farmers in order to maintain their privilege. They are not interested in redressing the wrongs of the past and are happy with maintaining the severely disproportionate benefits inherited from the apartheid era. By distorting the truth in a manner to make white South Africans feel at odds with the government, these groups aim to create conflict within the country to stop the process of land reform. University of South Africa political analyst Samadoda Fikin says, Afrikaner nationalism was built around farming, so they see this as an existential crisis. They are gripped in a siege mentality. They can't see a world where their privilege is challenged. They disregard history. The same objective of hindering land reform motivates international lobbying. Afrikaner groups, such as Afriforum or Sudlanders, toured in the U.S., the latter meeting up with various far-right activists, including David Duke, the former Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan, as well as other white supremacists and Nazi sympathizers. According to South African journalist Lloyd Getty, this network has allowed the Sudlanders to spread its message of white genocide around the world. The rapid circulation of this myth of a white genocide highlights the influence of this said network and the shocking facility with which extreme discourses and the atmosphere of fear they are aiming to spread are so easily vehiculated within media through the circulating of false, inadequate, and decontextualized information. This process of manipulation of the public opinion is not new. Examples of this include the over-mediatization of the refugee crisis to create a sense of hostility towards asylum seekers, who are viewed by white supremacists as a threat to the homogeny of their country. With the proliferation of discourse promoting extreme ideologies, the example of the myth of a white genocide within South Africa is a reminder to constantly be aware of who benefits from the news that you read. In this era of information, one must always make sure to explore the full context of an inflammatory topic before giving in to fear. Even though the policy of land expropriation without compensation has also been criticized as some believe that such a policy could result in a second Zimbabwe, land reform is necessary within South Africa. As the unequal distribution of land is a constant reminder of its colonial past and white dominance, by bridging the divides within South Africa's population, the country would be going into the right path towards dealing with its crime problems as well, since poverty is the main factor of violence within the country. Hence, probably even contributing to the reduction in the number of farm attacks. For to be free is not merely to cast off one's chains, but to live in a way that respects and enhances the freedom of others. Nelson Mandela